0: Welcome back to Talking PFAS. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. We're now on iTunes, by the way, so please feel free to leave a review at the end. I'm your host, Kayleen Bell. Every episode of Talking PFAS, I'll be bringing you a candid conversation I've had with a wide range of people and experts, including people who live or work in contaminated zones, politicians who work with these communities to try to get solutions, firefighters who have worked with these chemicals for decades. Fishing communities who have had to face closures because of pollution to their fishing environment, remediation experts, researchers who are trying to come up with solutions, scientists, medical professionals, toxicologists, hydrologists, the list goes on. There is a lot to talk about when it comes to this issue, and that's why I wanted to start the podcast. I'll also be digging deep to answer the questions flying under the radar. And please feel free to send me your questions at talkingpfas at gmail.com. Professor Martin Kirk is the lead researcher of the PFAS Health Study being conducted at the Australian National University in Canberra. The study is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health. I caught up with him to discuss the PFAS health study and also where he thought further research was needed.
1: Some of the areas we identified in our study that had limited evidence in the systematic review, that is worth further investigation. So those particular aspects of health, so around cholesterol and kidney disease and some of those cancers and probably also the immunological responses to vaccines.
0: Martin, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about your bio as it relates to your work on the PFAS health study?
1: Sure. So, my background is I, I actually started life out as an environmental scientist. I wanted to be a marine biologist, so I did a degree in chemistry with aquatic biology. I was a surfer and I didn't want to move away from the beach. When I finished, I applied for all these jobs and I got a job in the health department in Victoria. And I've never lived near the beach ever again. So in that job, I dealt with the water-related aspects of health, so swimming pools, cooling towels, and drinking water. And as I went along, I became interested in the link between water and health. I did a degree in epidemiology, and I ended up moving over to foodborne disease. So I've done a lot of investigations of foodborne illness, so mainly around infections, but also around chemical causes as well.
0: What sort of chemical causes have you personally investigated? Have you personally investigated PFAS for a long time?
1: Um, I haven't investigated PFAS for a long time, but I used to do things like investigating trihalomethanes in swimming pools, bromine in swimming pools, chemicals in water supplies.
0: In drinking water supplies?
1: Drinking water. Probably the most recent study I've done that is similar to the PFAS study is the, the ACT asbestos health study. And that has sort of directed some of our approach to this particular study. How? Well, the ACT asbestos health study was a situation in Canberra where there was this proprietor that went around and put asbestos insulation in the roofs of houses. So a neat asbestos. So it was crushed up asbestos in the 1960s and 70s. And it had come from South Africa. And so he would go door to door and sell this product and blow it into the roofs of houses. In the 1970s and 80s, the government realised it was a problem, so they remediated all of these houses. Turns out there was about 1,100 in the ACT and there was a couple hundred more in southern New South Wales. And so they thought they'd remediated them at quite a cost, but in about 2014... They identified that they could still find asbestos fibres in the living areas of these homes, and there was also a couple that had missed the remediation program. So we were commissioned by the ACT government to investigate the health effects. So we did some very similar studies that we're going to be doing in the PFAS health study, including cross-sectional surveys, so surveying residents about what their lived experience was like living in these homes, because it caused a huge issue in Canberra. The government were trying to respond by buying back properties and lots of people didn't actually want to move. They'd built up their community and so there was lots of problems. So some people wanted to move, some people didn't want to move, people didn't weren't happy with the price they got.
0: The buyback scheme that Professor Kirk referred to is called the Looseville asbestos insulation eradication scheme. A spokesperson for the Asbestos Response Task Force that the government set up in 2014 to coordinate the ACT government's response confirmed that as at the 17th of October 2018, the ACT government has bought back a total of 945 affected properties and 12 impacted properties at a net cash cost of $295 million, excluding contingencies as at the end of the 2017-2018 financial year. I asked why the government decided to buy the houses back when it was a private contractor, and this was the response from the spokesperson. After extensive discussions with experts, asbestos assessors, and homeowners in 2014, government determined that demolition of each affected house was the only enduring solution to the health risks as well as the social, practical, and financial consequences being faced by owners of affected properties. It's important to note here that social, practical and financial consequences were taken into account as part of this government buyback scheme. As many of the residents living in PFAS affected areas want the government to offer buybacks, not just because of health risks, but also because of the social, practical and financial consequences that they have also faced due to the contamination the Australian Government made a statement in May 2018 that based on the knowledge and evidence available at this time, the Australian Government is not considering a land purchase program as a result of PFAS contamination.
1: So it was really quite complicated and then we had to look at the health effects as well so whether the living in these homes actually caused mesothelioma in, in people.
0: The ANU study found that men living in these Mr. Fluffy homes were 2.5 times more likely to develop mesothelioma than men who hadn't. So as far as PFAS health study that you're doing, there's two phases to it, I understand, phase 1 phase 2. Yeah. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the phase 2 and then we'll come back to the phase 1. Okay, so sure. the four components of the phase 2.
1: Sure. So phase 2 has four different components. So firstly, there is some focus groups, which we've run in the three communities. the three communities we've been commissioned to work in, which is Williamtown, New South Wales, Oakey, Queensland and Catherine, Northern Territory.
0: The three communities that the ANU are working with for the PFAS health study, Catherine, Williamtown and Oakey, have all got class actions against the Department of Defence for PFAS contamination.
1: These focus groups are where we bring groups of affected residents together and they can talk about their experience their lived experience of anything that relates to their health or their well-being we have questions in those sessions that we use to direct the conversation but largely it's about listening to communities voices
0: can every community member be involved or is there a limit of numbers
1: we've actually finished that particular phase and we put out advertisements to local community members through the action groups in the newspapers and we held them in public places and people had to register and including we were able to do some focus groups in Aboriginal communities in Catherine which there hasn't been a lot of engagement with. Their issues are often things like what can we eat, can we swim in the river, they're the things that they would normally want to do but they're being told they can't so you have to then go what is safe and what is not safe and they haven't necessarily got good information about that, but I think there's been a lot of effort from government trying to do that. It's just a difficult process. Mm. We ran between five and six in each community and we had really great engagement and not really the, the residents were fantastic at sharing their views. And, you know, we heard all of the same things that we've seen in the media and we've seen in some of the Senate inquiries, but it was certainly a really... From our perspective, we were able to hear what their concerns were and what kind of social issues that they were having and health issues.
0: At the parliamentary inquiry into PFAS at Williamtown, the Federal Member for Newcastle, MP Sharon Claydon, asked residents Terry and Jenny Robinson about the ANU study.
1: What's your view around the uh, study that the ANU has been employed to do but won't be released and or not completed, sorry, until 2020? Are you being consulted with regards to that health we, study? We had one meeting when they said they were doing a health study, and we came to one meeting as part of the health study, and
2: we've heard nothing since. And that was. About a year ago? Yeah. It would six be months a year, ago? Six months ago? <laughs> Can I just say something? Terry Robinson, husband of Jenny. Thank you. Um, When we went to that meeting, it was more along the lines of mental health. They asked us how we were feeling, how we were coping, and they were very firm on that sort of train of thought. We didn't feel we got a lot out of the meeting, and I actually remember sort of saying to Jenny when we left, I don't know what they're going to gain out of that. So that is the only meeting we have actually had. And how long ago was that meeting? I'm, I'm gonna say, I said a year, but Jenny just said it was probably six months, so it's probably in that time okay. frame somewhere. But I don't think there would have been anybody that left that meeting that night that wasn't more revved up than what they were when they went, yeah. um, because we just didn't feel like it was anything, and we've mm. heard nothing since.
0: Jenny Robinson is a resident on Cabbage Tree Road where 50 cancers have been noted. She's also a breast cancer survivor. She shared her concerns about the ANU PFAS Health Study receiving funding from the Australian government. She's not the only resident with this concern. I feel that you have
1: a university who's getting funding from the government. They have to give the result that they think the government wants. Otherwise they're frightened they may lose their funding. So the trust
2: is completely gone. Build some trust
0: because there isn't much left. Just going back to those focus groups, Martin, did the residents express their concerns to you and your team about this health study, and did they express any concerns about whether it will be unbiased?
1: Yeah, look, we have heard those kind of concerns, and we get those, we we got them with the ACT Asbestos Health Study as well. We've got a very strong reputation for doing independent, unbiased research. Despite getting funding from government or industry, we take very strong views that our research is independent as independent as we can make it we do we would not want to be swayed by people based on where the funding comes from it's definitely true that we've been commissioned by government from our perspective they really let us do what we need to do and we we obviously have to report to them
0: are they actively guiding the study
1: no not at all we basically have obligations to provide protocols for these different components and produce the reports and they certainly have the opportunity to see the results and comment on them And but from our perspective it's it's entirely our work. The focus groups is the first of the four components. The other three is an opportunity for residents to give us their unbiased views and also we're going to be doing some data collection which I hope will certainly be, you know, something we can't really fiddle with, something nobody can fiddle with. So the other three components I should mention, firstly we have the cross-sectional survey which is a survey of residents. They'll be sampled and anyone who's participated in the voluntary blood testing program that the Federal Department of Health has organised will get an opportunity to participate in that. That's really going to be looking at the level of psychological distress in the community, the kind of self-reported health concerns that people have and also their likely exposures. There's also the blood testing so we're making use of anyone who's given blood through the voluntary blood testing program and we'll also be collecting further samples and comparing those to people in areas outside of the investigation zones. The final component is a data linkage study where we'll be looking at people who've ever lived in these investigation zones and comparing rates of some types of cancers and other health outcomes with people who haven't lived in those zones. So I think there's lots of difficulties, but that is certainly going to be, I would hope, one of the more telling types of studies. It certainly worked extremely well with the asbestos health study. We were able to link the medicare back files to the cancer registries around Australia, and we were able to look at people who lived in these affected homes because you can imagine in someone like Canberra, they move on, they get diagnosed with cancer somewhere else. So you couldn't just do a study looking at ACT residents. You had to do the whole of Australia. And I'm hoping we'll be able to do that here in these three communities. We will get the Medicare data back files to, to see anyone who's ever lived in these investigation zones and compare it to the areas around it. And we'll be able to look at rates of cancer for people who've lived in those areas like very specific areas like we're talking about individual addresses not broad areas that aren't part of the investigation zones and we'll be able to compare that to people who live outside so that gives us a more robust comparison hopefully that will contribute some data to the overall picture but I also hope it will provide some level of certainty for residents as well.
0: As an epidemiologist, is there code of ethics that govern, you know, you were talking about bias, are there code of ethics that you work under?
1: Yeah, look, it's a great question because um, people in the community won't realise that all human health research is governed by ethical principles and privacy principles, and we have to put every study that we do through ethics committees. And in this kind of instance where we've got three communities, we will have anywhere up to two or three ethics committees will have to put this through and they can take some time and they often come back to us with questions. They're interested in things like is the research you're doing going to provide useful benefit for the community? Are you taking appropriate care and protection with the data you're collecting? And do people know exactly how you're going to use that data and whether they can access it? So they're the types of questions, but we have to put in very large submissions to those committees, particularly where we're engaging with communities like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. We have to say that they actually want this. We're not allowed to just turn up and do research where it hasn't been requested or approved beforehand. There's been a bit of information in the media that people think we're only going to report back in 2020, and that is not actually correct we have obligations to report after we've concluded each component so we've given reports on the focus groups to government but we're waiting to complete the final piece which is the catherine uh, focus groups we were only asked to extend the study to catherine earlier this year so we've done focus groups now we've completed all of those and we're working on a report so we'll Put that report into the government later this year and that will be made available to communities we're also going to go back to communities and tell them about what we found and that's true of all of the components we're going to be going to community and talking to them about the systematic review that we did as well as each component i think that is certainly something that I would hope that we do have ongoing engagement with community. The other thing we have with community is that we have a community reference panel. It's not large. There's about two to three people per community. We want to learn how is the study being viewed, what can we do to to assist things in the community, and so that's been really helpful. That's only recently established, but we've always planned to do it. I hope that that will give us greater insight into how we can make sure the study is you know, getting the message out there that we want to get out rather than just other people talking about it out of misinformation.
0: Coming back to the literature in phase one, we just want to talk about this for a little bit.
1: So there were two things we did in phase one. The first was to develop some protocols for how we might approach this problem in the communities to do some initial community consultation. And then we also did a systematic literature review. And what a systematic literature review is, is where we take some defined terms like we might use some defined words that we look in the medical literature and we search all of the medical literature and we also look to search non-medical literature and we're looking for health information that is of a certain type of quality and fits our criteria so it has to study the chemicals we're interested in it has to be conducted in humans only what we do then is we will have a process of going through all of that because anyone who searches the internet Realizes if you put in PFAS health, you'll come back with millions of hits. So we use specific search engines that just look at the medical literature and just look at what we call the grey literature, which is government reports. And we have a defined framework and we will sift through those and we end up with a smaller number that are consistent types of studies and they're high-quality studies that provide information that's useful. Otherwise, if we just try to compare everything, we're comparing... Apples and oranges, and it really doesn't make sense.
0: So, what constitutes a high-quality study? There, because you know, a lot of people have an idea that a peer-reviewed study is a high-quality study. Is that not the case?
1: Well, it's actually not. Funnily enough, you would have thought that everything that got published in the medical literature was good, but it isn't. And in particular, with the rise of journals on the internet, there's been a breakdown in medical literature quality. It, you know, you can now pay to present your own articles in journals and it may not be good quality so what we're looking for is we're looking for studies that are a certain type there are standard study designs that we use in epidemiology and when we read there are standardized descriptions of them as well and when we read them and they don't fit that we know that they're not a good quality study.
0: Can you give me an idea of what would make you cast it aside as not a good study because I know there's a lot of people researching for themselves Mm. in these communities Obviously, they can't maybe determine that the same way you're determining what's a good study and what's a bad study. But are there some standout things to look out for when you're reading?
1: I think it's really hard for the uninitiated to actually work out what's a good study and what's not because some of the things take years to understand about what's important. It's really hard to actually make sense of the literature, and we found we struggled as well we we had international experts looking at this
0: how many articles did you end up with
1: we ended up with 221 we had several thousand that we pulled up in our search. And so we went through this process of looking at the titles of the articles and then we looked at the abstracts, which is a summary. If they weren't looking at human health and if they weren't an epidemiological study design, we actually didn't include them. So we ended up with 221 different papers and they looked at 148 different health outcomes. So it was a very complex undertaking. It took us a lot longer than we thought it would.
0: You said it was quite a big undertaking... If you're looking at the abstracts and the titles and determining whether it's going to be included, how long did that process take your team?
1: Oh, look, I can't quite remember exactly how long it took us, but it took us months to, you know, I would say six months to actually whittle down to the 221 articles. And then what we had to do was break it up into groups and we were evaluating each study using a standard framework. So that was trying to extract information out of the study about what the researchers found what they concluded about the study, what the study design was. And then we also looked at the likelihood that it was subject to bias. And there's a whole range of reasons why these studies have biases in them. And then it's not that the researchers did a bad job, it's just that it's difficult to actually count an individual study as a cause. We often have individual studies that find interesting things, but in science... What we then need to do is go and see if we can replicate it or whether there's multiple people who've found the same thing because things happen by chance. Things happen due to bias.
0: So how do you identify for bias when you're quickly looking at these articles and you'll you you know, you'll talk about, we found, I think you use the words like most studies were biased. I haven't got the yeah. correct wording. Yeah. Do you remember it?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we would say the majority of studies in this systematic view had moderate to high level of bias. We looked at a whole range of different domains, everything from how people were selected into the study, whether they lost a lot of people along the way to follow up. So, you know, they might have started with a large number of people, but at the end they only had a small number. And other types of bias as well. And in particular, probably the most important one is controlling what we call confounding. And confounding is where we might be trying to measure the effect of a certain factor on a health outcome And we haven't taken into account a third one. And a a classic example is, is smoking. So if we're trying to investigate, say, amongst workers who've had more PFAS exposure and we're looking at cancer, and that's quite a valid thing to do is to look at people who've worked in a factory and see whether they develop cancer based on their exposure to PFAS. But if we haven't taken into account their smoking status, We might be very misled because we might find the people who are most exposed have higher levels of smoking than people who work in the office. There's a whole range of reasons for that. And so we could be misled. Our findings might say, yes, exposed, cancer, but we haven't taken into account that relationship with smoking.
0: So when you say it's bias, you're not saying that the author's a bias, you're yeah. saying...
1: Yeah, it's a study design that when we say bias, I mean, there are types of author bias as well. So a good example, if it's funded by industry, we would say that immediately has a a level of bias that's something we should take note of and we would record that.
0: Did you use articles that were funded by these polluters of the the creators of these chemicals?
1: Yeah, we we did actually. There's not many studies amongst workers that haven't been conducted by those companies. So the worker cohort is a group which has very high levels of exposure, orders of magnitude higher than the even the contaminated communities. So they are important they are some of the ones that identified some potential concerns around cancer.
0: I've got a document that says that for PFOS and PFOA alone, between 2002 and 2016 on SciFinder, which I noticed that you used SciFinder as one of your sources, there were over 7,500 studies on those two chemicals. So I'm just curious why only 221? I know you've explained your selection, but I'm curious with that many, how your study and the government quoted it, can say that you've studied all the published literature.
1: We're looking here at epidemiological studies. The majority of those other studies would probably not be epidemiological in nature, particularly SciFinder, which is taking into account environmental and other causes. So what we ended up with was 7,205 papers in our overall search. And that is looking across several different databases. What we did then was we merged those and we went through that merged set. So there's duplication across those different databases. So we might've found one in PubMed, we might've found one in SciFinder. So there were 7,205 individual papers we pulled up that had our search terms in them, which included things like human health, PFOS, PFOA, a range of very general search terms around this. And what we did then was we went through a process of whittling it down to studies that we could actually compare. So lots of studies will talk about human health effects, but they might be what we call review articles where they're just reviewing the health effects and we didn't include those because they actually don't have primary data which we can actually compare from study to study.
0: I just guess it's a semantic thing. I know this has been a big bugbear for residents. They've talked about this with me, that it's not all published research. Look at- that message is going out to the Australian public in the government submission. right? They, they put that in their submission. So if the, if the public think that, okay, all the literature that's ever been written on PFAS was reviewed by no, the uh, ANU. We, we
1: never we never made that claim.
0: In your plain language summary, it says, this review examined all published research into the human health effects of exposure to PFAS. So clearly 221 is not all but it says all.
1: This is a plain language summary which we're trying to convey to people that we have looked at the credible information that we could find. We conducted an exhaustive search of the medical literature and these were the studies that were comparable and we followed a framework which has been used for decades.
0: The resident's have such a lack of trust in the government at the moment, as you can understand, because of the way that they were told about the pollution. Do you think the wording could be improved there? Because it's it's not all the published research at all.
1: Well, you know, I take your point, but I don't think it really matters here. All I can say is all of the high quality research that we could identify that we could compare reliably that's what we've included perhaps
0: it should have said something like that it might give people more confidence
1: i don't think people should put necessarily too much stock in semantics like that i really think ultimately the conclusions that we've drawn here are reliable and that's what people should focus on you know the conclusions about the lack of evidence for many health effects that have been investigated is reliable. There is a couple of health effects which are of concern and I think that that's something we highlighted in the report as well.
0: What, what are those couple?
1: There's really only one that we found consistent evidence for and that was high cholesterol which is associated with cardiovascular heart disease. And it really doesn't necessarily raise cholesterol levels by a great deal, but it's still something that is worth further investigation. The other things, there were some cancers, so testicular cancer and kidney cancers, where there was limited evidence, what we'd call limited, and that's just meaning that there were some studies that found there were was an association, and some, but more of them found that there wasn't. Also, kidney disease and uric acid levels, elevated uric acid levels.
0: So you're bringing up the uric acid in the blood. Mm -hmm. I'll just read this passage about it. In a small number of studies, we found limited evidence that high PFAS levels in the blood reduced kidney function or were associated with Mm -hmm. chronic kidney Mm -hmm. disease. Then you say, since PFAS chemicals are excreted by the kidneys, it's possible PFAS does not cause poor kidney function but rather that poor kidney function caused by something else causes increases in PFAS levels in blood. I've seen studies that have talked about how as your body is trying to get rid of them, they go back through your system again. And this is why they've got such a long half-life. So it could be possible that the reabsorption of the PFAS back into the kidneys is causing them to not be able to get rid of it. Is that not true?
1: No, look what what we're saying here is that where people have studied kidney function and they've looked at whether people with higher levels of PFAS have poorer kidney function, there's also the possibility because PFAS is resident in the blood and it's excreted through the kidneys, if you had a disease that was, you know, kidney disease due to some other cause, you might be less able to excrete PFAS From your blood and so when someone comes along and measures it they might actually observe that you've got elevated PFAS compared to someone who's got normal kidney function because you haven't been able to excrete it at the same rate and so it might make you think that you've observed an association between elevated PFAS means poorer kidney function but in fact it might be the other way around. So it might be the poorer kidney function means you're able to le- less likely to be able to excrete it. There's not great evidence for it, but it's just a possibility. And I think that kind of comes back to the quality. It's very difficult to get do studies that actually show you one comes before the other
0: wouldn't including urine studies therefore be able to um, show you if say there was a small cohort that weren't excreting it at the same rate
1: if you thought it was a worthwhile target as you can see there was 148 health outcomes he- studied here and it's really quite important given that all of these kinds of studies are very expensive it, it's worth actually focusing it you know you can detect uric acid levels in blood so you don't need to have urines but um I think the ultimate way of doing it is actually doing studies where there's follow-up of people over time. People can do these types of epidemiological studies and if they find an association, it doesn't mean one causes the other. But what we're looking for in this systematic review is if there are multiple studies that find the same thing, then you start to go, hmm, that really rings true. And then you can, particularly when you've got corroborating Evidence from animal studies mm. and knowledge about the fate of the chemical in the environment and in the human body. So, I, I think that's what ultimately you're looking for. And so, even things that you know we we accept cause disease, like smoking causes lung cancer, took many many years mm. for it to get gather enough evidence and convince people that it caused human illness.
0: If there's limited evidence, surely maybe more research needs to be done in that area. For instance, just that example that we just spoke about, the kidney, the urine, to perhaps include, like I said, the rate of excretion.
1: You know, when we did the systematic review, I think they are the kind of areas we think attention should be given us, the ones where we've got sufficient and limited evidence. So,
0: Such as? What are the sufficient and limited evidence areas?
1: The ones with limited, there was kidney cancer, testicular cancer, there was elevated uric acid, kidney disease, And there were also some immune-related effects on vaccination response.
0: Such as diphtheria and rubella? Yep. So they need more investigation, do you think?
1: Look, I I, I think they do. Ultimately, at the moment, you know, the, the expert health panel that the department put together, I think they came to similar conclusions. So... They were tasked with working out where further research should be directed around health.
0: Have they agreed that those areas should be examined further?
1: Well, they've produced a report and they were largely consistent with what we've just talked about in the systematic review.
0: Professor Nicholas Buckley, who was the chair of the government's expert health panel, was the keynote speaker at a recent PFAS summit held in Sydney at the EcoForum conference. Here's a little bit of what he had to say, but I will be bringing you a full wrap of that PFAS summit in a future episode.
2: So this is the list of key reports and reviews. As you can see, they're all quite recent. The ones we relied on most heavily in terms of the evidence was this one from ANU, which was very up-to-date and very comprehensive. So we're essentially basing our reports largely on the other reports, and our key question was, uh, well, are any of them coming up with any different conclusions? And the bottom line was, no, they were all looking at pretty much the same evidence and they were all coming up to pretty much the same conclusions about what that evidence was. So evidence linking it with actual human diseases is largely missing. It doesn't mean it, it that there, there are no effects, it just means that there is no evidence of effects. Our main concern was this increased risk of uncommon cancers, testicular and kidney. We thought they were possibly due to chance. And we also highlighted again these cholesterol, uric acid, kidney function, immune function, thyroid hormones, sex hormones, lower birth weight. Pretty much every study that looks at PFAS concentrations finds it correlates with increased urate, involved in gout, increased cholesterol, involved in heart disease, poor kidney function. So that's across the board. All the studies tend to show that consistently, time after time after time. So why is that not necessarily a cause? Well. The bottom line is, if you have poor kidney function, you have higher cholesterol, you have higher urate, and you will also end up with higher PFAS concentrations for a given exposure. So this is where we're at. We cannot actually work out which of these stories is true. And really, to deal with this, we have to do longitudinal studies, where we start with PFAS concentrations and look for, say, the rise in cholesterol, the rise in creatinine, whatever changes over time. Or we have to be able to get PFAS out of people and then go, well, your cholesterol dropped when we got rid of the PFAS. And until we can do one of those two sorts of study designs, we cannot say which of these two explanations is correct. So what is the cancer risk? So if we go to IARC, uh, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, it rates this as 2B. But basically it says, overall, there is some evidence of mechanism that might be relevant. And there is limited evidence. And the only place it cites is this C8 cohort studies, of which by far the largest is this study by Barry et al. Now, quite a big study, 2,400 cancers. Population, I think, was over 50,000. They looked at a lot of cancers, about 18. This is clearly indicating no overall increased risk of cancer. That's the sum for all the different cancers put together. And so that's why we felt it was necessary to say that, because people were implying that because there's a risk of one or two cancers, that there's a risk across all cancers. The two that they highlighted in this study, and then went further to look at uh, this one and this one, and so they are testicular and kidney. The ANU study basically found this uh, data completely unconvincing for a cancer association. Many regulatory agencies have said, well, there's a possible link. I think PFAS is in the urgent but not important area. But if we're talking about health evidence for effects, It is urgent that we do something about this. This stuff is continuing to accumulate the longer we don't do something about it. And it will continue to do that. And we'd be pretty stupid if we sat around waiting to find out that this stuff that selectively accumulates in people is harmful. But at the moment, the health evidence does not say this is an important cause of health problems. And I'd say the reason it is regarded as an important cause of health problems is because of Walkley Award journalism walkley award winning journalism
0: the walkley award journalism that professor buckley is referring to there is the reporting by carrie Fellner, who reported for the newcastle herald about the sorrow on cabbage tree road which profiled 50 cancers on one stretch of road near the williamtown RAF base the judges said it was an outstanding piece of research leading to a new study and possibly extended class action
2: but if we have a persistent organic pollutant that we discover, so we discover that something like PFAS is persisting ridiculous amount in the environment and accumulating in people the amazing ability of humans to take up PFAS and hang on to them. We're like a hoover for PFAS in the environment. So very low levels in the environment lead to quite relatively thousandfold higher levels in humans. The decisions about PFAS chemicals should be based upon scientific evidence that these are extremely persistent and build up in humans. We have enough information to regulate it. If we're sitting around waiting for health effects, we are missing the boat. Where will the future evidence place PFAS? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out that it does do something horrible. Maybe we'll find out it does absolutely nothing when we do a bit of research. It's a bit of an unknown. It clearly has enough evidence that it can have biological effects. Anyone with any sense would avoid consuming this chemical, but we don't know if it has important human disease implications. In fact, if we get rid of PFAS, we will never know, and that's the ideal place for a persistent organic pollutant that we never, ever find the answer as to whether this has health effects. The
1: Expert Health Panel's report, relied on our systematic review, but also on other systematic reviews that have been conducted by other investigators, none of which were from Australia. They used similar frameworks, but they were focused on specific areas like there was a systematic review on the health effects of PFAS in children, or there was one looking at birth outcomes. And there's also recently been a large report produced by the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry.
0: Yeah, the 800-page report.
1: The 800-page report is huge. And it relies on different additional forms of evidence. So it relied on these studies that we've used here, but also on animal studies.
0: The PFAS inquiry that's been going on in Williamtown, Catherine, Oakey, and the final one will be in Canberra. Mm did you put in a submission for that inquiry?
1: No, we didn't put in a submission. We are going to Appear before them when they come in Canberra though.
0: Professor Martin Kirk did give evidence at the Canberra hearing on the 14th of September 2018 and you can read more about what he had to say by going to the government website www.aph.gov.au and searching PFAS inquiry where you can access the transcript of all the public hearings. For those people waiting for the committee's report it was due to be reported at the end of October it's now going to be December 3.
1: We certainly have been watching how the communities perceive the issues in different places and we can see that some of the residents have criticised our studies and even some of the um, local health practitioners as well. From our perspective it's certainly a difficult issue to try and get good community engagement but we're working hard to do that and we're, we're keen to continue so we're not going to go away easily. We're, we're commissioned to do this research and we're going to do the best we can. We're keen to engage with community. The way that we designed the studies is trying to work out how we could best get information about health effects, and we did that based on what we'd seen other people had done and what we thought we could do in this situation using our previous experience with other studies.
0: Where is the areas that probably need some more investigation?
1: Look, I think in terms of literature, maybe updating this systematic review, I haven't seen there's been a lot of new studies since this was published. I think if we're going to get better handle on things, one area of research that probably needs to be done better is the highly exposed populations because in general that's where you're going to see overt health effects. I think that's certainly an area. I also think that some of the areas we identified in our study that had limited evidence in the systematic review that is worth further investigation so those particular aspects of health so around cholesterol and kidney disease and some of those cancers and probably also the immunological responses to vaccines but that said the expert health panel report also makes they considered a broader range of evidence and made other conclusions
0: did you consider it much international research in your systematic review
1: it's largely all international because all of the studies have been done elsewhere so three group three communities three types of communities were studied highly exposed workers highly exposed or moderate to high exposure amongst in communities and then communities where there was little or no exposure so birth cohorts in places like Denmark. It's important to recognise that everybody has a baseline level of exposure because these chemicals were so widely used.
0: Is it true that everybody in every population would have PFAS in their blood?
1: It's certainly, it was widely used in a in a range of different products, and so it's likely that everybody's been exposed. We are seeing declines in populations blood levels since they've stopped using some of those chemicals so, so there's
0: been widespread biomonitoring of some kind going on
1: no not widespread but there certainly has been studies conducted of pooled blood samples that's how it's been done in australia also in in the u.s there's a study called the um NHANES study and they have been monitoring blood levels over decades and yeah
0: that's in your systematic review isn't it
1: yep correct yes it is and so they've been looking at the change in blood levels over years and seeing declines over time as well
0: we're out of time in two or three minutes anything else you want to add martin that you think is significant that we've missed out here
1: no i think one of the things i would like to say though is um and it's what we say when we go to communities we really value their engagement and from our perspective we can fully understand the the distress these kinds of issues cause as we've we always go in with and try to be as respectful as we possibly can but also to try and get answers we're not interested in identifying things that suit government or suit community we're interested in finding the truth as much as we can and that's our ultimate aim so we go into these communities gather data And we summarise it in a way that hopefully makes sense. And we were certainly able to do that. It was very reassuring in the ACT Asbestos Health Study. And we're hoping we can do similar things here in the PFAS Health Study.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please download and share so more people can hear this. Next episode of Talking PFAS. Dr Turner's innovative research has shown that plant proteins from hemp plants are an effective and natural method for PFAS remediation. I asked him what he thought when he saw the initial test results.
2: I came to my office and got my lab book and I had a look and I thought, oh goodness, that is fantastic. Of the initial concentrations, we removed over 98% of the PFOS that was there and 97% of the PFOA. It wasn't an anomaly.
0: You're seeing those consistent numbers.
2: Yeah, 98% plus and sometimes to below the limit of reporting, which is... The very limit that the lab can get to
0: the scientific question that was discussed in today's episode of whether pfas causes poor kidney function or whether poor kidney function causes higher levels of pfas is a really important question and it's one that i intend to explore further by speaking with kidney specialists in a future episode but if you are a nephrologist and you have studied environmental pollutants, particularly PFAS, I'd really love to talk to you at talkingpfas at gmail.com. If you're a resident living in an area affected by PFAS and today's episode has stirred up issues for you, please call Lifeline on 13114 or Beyond Blue 1300 224636. Thank you once again for listening to Talking PFAS and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks very much. See you next time. All the information and audio in today's episode is copyright. Please contact me for permissions. Thank you.